Today I'd like to talk to you about foraging for scraps. Well, more to the point, not foraging for scraps. I want to tell you a little bit about a friend of mine in the Bible called Paul, or he used to be called Saul. He was a persecutor, a murderer of Christians. He was a Jewish man who, when Jesus came along, he decided he was going to go along because this was heresy. This was a crime. This was a bit like me trying to kill the queen. Somebody saying that they were the son of God in a Jewish country was a crime. So Paul would go around and kill these people. Until one day Jesus himself said, I've had enough. And he came from heaven and he met this guy on a journey and he revealed himself to him. This is possibly the biggest conversion story in the whole Bible. From the biggest sinner to the biggest saint. Not that it's a, a competition, but from the biggest sinner to the biggest saint. And something really weird happened in that moment when Jesus revealed himself to Paul, or Saul as he was still called. He got something like, there was like scales on his eyes. So in the, in the spiritual sense, he was a sinner who was saved, but in a physical sense, he actually picked up a disease he couldn't see, he became blind. And that's where I'm going to pick up the story, because it says immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. What Paul had done, you see, was instead of just going, wow, I've had this miraculous conversion story. He followed the first instruction of Jesus, which was, go and find a man called Ananias. And he will pray for you. So he did. He prayed for him and he was healed. The first thing we see is an obedience from Saul. He then says, he got up, not deliberately, honestly and was baptized. People often ask me, is my salvation based on baptism? And I say, no, your salvation is based on grace alone. You are saved because Jesus loves you and because you've accepted in your heart and confessed with your lips. So why get baptized? It's the first step of obedience. Because Jesus, it was good enough for Jesus. Jesus asked us to be baptized, so he was. One of my favorite verses now. And after having his tea, he took some food. I often do that. Especially when I've had a God encounter. I take some food, especially after a week of prayer and fasting. And you know, we missed that this morning. We were going to have a time of reflection. We've had a busy day. We're going to do it at the end instead. But if you believe during your week of prayer and fasting the Lord has spoken to you, I think you need to come and share that. So when I finish, let's have an opportunity when we're having teas and coffees. Just, we're a family. We can all come to the front. We can do it privately. We can do it on a microphone. But let's share with each other what the Lord has spoken to us this week. He regained his strength after taking his food. And then, and then, can you imagine this? He had this amazing conversion experience. The first thing he did was be baptised. The second thing he did was he went and spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Why did he do this? This man would have been the best trained person in that room in his Bible. His Bible would have only been the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. But he would have been the most intelligent man there. And he had just seen Jesus face to face. Why did he need it? Because he needed correction. And he needed guidance and he needed fellowship, and he needed advice. This is the greatest writer in the Bible, the New Testament, the greatest conversion story we've ever known. And if we're gonna take away anything, I sit down and shut up, we can all have some teas and coffees early, is that he had his experience with Jesus. 
He got himself baptised and then he got himself discipled. Sadly, I'm not going to do that. We are going to rush because we're running out of time. But after this, once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God, all of those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, his na- on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by, providing, by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy amongst the Jews to even kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in a wall. When he came to Jerusalem... Did you see that, by the way? After all those wonderful things that he did, people tried to kill him. It wasn't an easy life. It wasn't an easy journey. He didn't become a Christian all of a sudden and get lots of tea and cake. He put his life on the line for what he'd learned. It was a serious message that he wanted to distribute. And when he did escape, guess what? He went to another city. He went to Jerusalem. Maybe he went to Wickford or he went to to Billericay. And there he tried to join the disciples. These were actually the disciples of Jesus. But actually these guys were so afraid of him, not believing that he was really a new disciple. But some fella called Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, the disciples of Jesus. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul, not only having sought out these disciples, he then stayed with them again. Again, he sought out new people to disciple him on the new stage of his journey. He moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with them. They took down uh, the Hellenistic Jews. They even tried to kill him there. When the believers learned of this, they took him down into Caesarea uh, and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And I know I'm rushing and I'm sorry for those that struggle to hear my funny Bristolian accent when I speak too fast. But we are on a bit of a time frame. But you can find that Bible verse in Acts 9, 18-31. And if you go further forward, you'll find the rest of the story that I paraphrased for you. There's lots of lessons that we can learn from that. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible for a reason. But you take away from that section is that it's time to leave the past behind us. Don't you think? Not once in that story did we ever hear about Paul killing another Christian, did you? Any other Bible scholars in the room? Did I miss it? Did he ever revisit his back life? Did he ever slip back into being a Jew again? Or did he live wholeheartedly for Jesus, putting his life on the line, sacrificing everything for him? It's time to leave your past behind you. Jesus was walking along the road once, just like Paul. But this was before he died. You'll find this in Luke 9, 57 to 62. 
He says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, he said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, why don't you follow me? But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I have put my hand to the plow and I don't want to look back. I'm tempted sometimes. I am. But I don't want to look back. I want to plow forward. I've made my commitment for Jesus. I want to look forward. In another story in Luke, it's one that we talk about quite often in this church. We talk about new wineskins. Alan came a few weeks ago and prophesied to us about how you would never put new wine in an old wineskin. Likewise, you wouldn't put old wine in a new wineskin because it would ruin the good wine. It doesn't say that in the parable, but it really does mean it. It's another way of looking at it. It's another way of looking at the plough. It says, he told them this, no one tears a piece of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the old will not match the new. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wineskin will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new, no new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Do you know when we talk about new wine and new wineskins in this church, we always focus on the new wine. Because we want a fresh sound, we want something new, we want the next thing that can come. But if any of you know anything about wine, you know that that is nonsense. The best wine is the old wine. Not the old wine skin, it's the old wine. Did any of you ever occur to, did it ever occur to any of you that this wasn't about you? That this was about the kingdom of God. And that the wineskin, the wineskin could be what we call the ancient of days. The oldest of wineskin. God himself. The Holy Spirit was there at the very beginning of time. How about the, new, the old wine might actually be the Holy Spirit? There is nothing wrong in this parable about having new wine in new wineskins. Guys, let's do it. We need a fresh flavour and we need a fresh sound for this coming generation. So let's put our new wine into our new wineskins and do something about it. What we don't do is we don't discard the old wine. It's the best wine. And we don't discard our old wineskins, otherwise we have nothing to put it in. Radical love and radical grace for a radical salvation. How often have I said this? I don't know... Which one of you is the worst sinner? But I do know my own sin. I know my sin is the worst one here. So I know. 
I know what Jesus did for me when he died on the cross and he gave me a new chance. He gave me a new wineskin and he gave me new wine. I wanted to run with him. I think he's the old wine. I think he's the old wineskin. I don't think we should mix the two. When we prayed for Lisa, I'm not picking you up, not picking on you honestly. We talked about us living in a broken world. But you know, in the beginning of time, life actually looked a bit like this. It was clean as white as snow. It was perfect. There was no sin, there was no cancer. There was no pain, there was no suffering. There was no injustice, there was no heartache or heartbreak. There was no disappointment. But when sin came along, we broke it. Things started to happen. The world became broken. We also said today, didn't we, that his mercies are new every morning. So every time you go to Jesus, he gives you a fresh page. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, you miserable bunch. His mercies are new every morning. The thing that the Lord laid on my heart for us today, and I know I've jumped around the Bible, and I know some of us have maybe struggled to follow it, is that this doesn't give us the right to mess up on purpose. Because tomorrow, his mercies will be new all over again. So let's go and do whatever the hell we want, to whoever the hell we want, and tomorrow morning our mercies will be new. Paul didn't see it like that, did he? And Jesus didn't see it like that. I know God doesn't see it like that. What I actually wrote was, let's mess up. We've been saved by grace alone after all, and of course he'll keep forgiving us. But, Tim Siner, sigh of relief at the front here. <laughs> but if we spent our whole life living day by day, and relying on that constant refreshing of his mercies every morning, it's a bit like waiting for scraps. It's a bit like begging, and it's a bit like never growing up. Can you imagine a child, I was going to use a, a, a toilet analogy, I thought some of you might be offended, so I'm not going to. But let's look at a child. When they're first born, they can't do anything. They cannot do anything for themselves. They are led there, and they are waiting to be fed, and nappy changed, and loved, and cuddled, and fed, and all the rest of it. We're just going to focus on one element of their development. We're going to focus on walking. If you took a baby and you said, don't worry, tomorrow you can do exactly the same again. You can stay there on the floor and I will still care for you. That'll be okay. If you said that when they were two months, maybe you might start getting a little bit concerned. You'd maybe want to see them wriggle around, maybe even attempt to crawl or turn over. Now you say it to them when they're three years old, it's okay. You stay there on the floor, don't attempt to turn over even. Certainly don't try and crawl. It's gonna be okay, I'm here to care for you, I'm here to look after you. Imagine when they're 13 years old. 
they are still led on the floor, and they are still in their nappies, and you are still saying to them, don't worry, don't do anything, I will care for you. Do you know, let me answer you the question, would God do that for you? Yes. Yes, he would. He will care for you every minute and every day of your life, but he wants something better for you. He doesn't want to keep you a baby your whole life. He wants to see you grow. And when you continue to take his promises to you, his grace and his mercy, and you screw it up every day and you throw it away and you say, it's okay, tomorrow my nappy will be changed and I will be fed again. It's not him that you're hurting. It's you. You will not grow. You will not develop. You will not see the fulfillment of God's purposes for your life if you continue to mess around with sin and say, tomorrow it will be okay. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. He says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still an infant, but not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. But why would we waste our lives? Why would you have this one beautiful, wonderful opportunity that when you were young, you didn't even know about Jesus? Maybe you were fortunate. Maybe you got raised in a Christian home and you did. I didn't. And you, 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 you grow up in this broken, horrible world where people all around you are hurting each other. Maybe they're hurting you. Maybe there's no hope. Maybe you've suffered loss. And then you suddenly get into this place where actually you have a new opportunity. God gives you, he makes you a new wineskin. And he gives you some new wine to fill into that wineskin. And he promises you that he is the Ancient of Days and all of those past truths are still true too. And his mercies are still new every morning. But he has given you this opportunity. You may not have been as big a sinner as Paul. And you may not be as big a sinner as me. But does it matter if you owe £10 on your credit card or £10,000 on your credit card? You can't pay back your credit card anyway. It doesn't matter. So why does it matter when someone comes along and says, I don't care what's on your bill. I am going to repay your credit card bill for you. Doesn't matter if it's £10, doesn't matter if it's 10000 Somebody came along and said, I am going to pick up the bill for you. What are you going to do? Yes, I can go on a spending spree. I'm going to go and get myself in trouble again. I'm going to go and spend loads of money. I'm going to go and hurt myself again. I'm going to go and get myself in trouble again. Now, of course you wouldn't. You'd go, oh my goodness, I have been redeemed. Somebody saved me. I was in real trouble then. And now I've been saved. You know, you may make a mistake. You may. In fact, you're going to. I do all the time. I just don't do it on purpose. Maybe I might go to somebody, just like Paul did, and say, my friend, can I pick on you? My friend, I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about ripping this up. Do you think it's a good idea? No, don't do it. Are you sure? Absolutely. I might do it anyway. Yeah. I still forgive He still forgives me. Or maybe I listen to him. And I say, 
Do you think it's a good idea if I rip this up? I am so glad that God gave me someone in my life that I could turn to that stopped me doing something stupid. I know that some of you here have known Jesus your whole life. I know some of you got saved, converted, whatever you want to call it, from a very young age. I know some of you may not even know Jesus today. But everything I have said to you today is true. You started off like this. You're going to finish like this. Because his mercies are new every morning. That's true. There is nothing you can do that will stop him doing this. There is nothing he can do to stop him. No guilt, no condemnation. This isn't about judgment. That's true too. But we as Christians, let me warn you, sometimes get an attitude. It's called Bart Simpson, by the way. He actually preached on this in a Simpsons episode. Because I am going to wait to one second before I die, and then I'll give my life to Jesus. Because then I get the best of both worlds. I get to do everything I want on this earth, and I still get eternal life as well. Would it work? Yeah, probably. It's not the best that God had in plan for a fictional yellow character with spiky hair. Certainly not the best he's got planned for you. Is it true that we could give our lives to Jesus, believe with our hearts, confess with our lips, and he will give us new mercies every day? Yes. Will he coach us himself? Yes. Will he convict our hearts and teach us through the word of God? Yes. But this is something we've seen in our church. And I don't think it's Living Word Community Church, Basildon. I think it's the Western Church. Not all of them. But the church. Not just our church. Everyone. One of the things we've forgotten in our culture, maybe it's because we're British, maybe it's because we don't like sharing, maybe it's because we're too private. But we hate the idea of going to somebody else and saying, Tim, I have a problem. It just started with one pint. And then it was one pint every day. And then it was three. And then it was ten. And now I can't stop. Can you help me? God has given us people in our lives. Because he has not called us into isolation. He has called us into community. We do God and we do his word and injustice when we take one or two Bible verses and start to use them like bullets. We are saved by grace alone. Woohoo! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. We can do whatever the hell we want if that is the only Bible verse you ever read. I had a personal revelation a few weeks ago. I was on a day trip with a friend. With a friend. And we were staring up at the sky. And it was beautiful stars. And the revelation was, do you know, I hear too often that this is how God made us. It's just the way I am. Do you know, from a very young age, I was inclined to smoke and swear. That's the truth, by the way. I don't have a drinking problem. Just like last week, I didn't have a problem with beating my fictional wife. Okay, I don't have a drinking problem, I promise. <laughs> But too many non-Christians will say, and too many Christians will say, but God made me like this, and I have these promises in the word, so I don't have to do anything. 
I can just carry on. The personal revelation was this, and I want to share it with you. It was a personal revelation. It's not for you, but you can have it if you want. You are not the way God made you to be. Not one person in this room can come to me and say, but God made me this way. It's a lie. God made you perfect. Perfect. No guilt, no condemnation, no sin, no selfishness, no greed, no gluttony, no lust. Certainly no murder, no adultery. I could list them all, I don't want to. But I tell you, he didn't make you like this. You show me one person, one of you, come to me at the end of this service and say, God made me like this and I am perfect. I will show you a selfie or a mirror and I will show you a fool. Because it's a lie of the enemy. God did not make you like this. God made you perfect. His promise is that he will make you perfect time and time again. No matter what's happened in the past. No matter what your insecurity. No matter what your disappointment no matter what your sin, he will make you perfect again. But we have to ask him. And we have to go to him. Now, if you want to see what God has fulfilled in your life, you have to move beyond the milk. You have to move behind the simple promise that actually I'll do whatever the hell I want. And tomorrow it will all start again. It's true. But he wants something better for you. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. He wants something better for you most common thing I hear in the western church is I don't have to go to church to be a Christian because I'm saved by grace all those bible verses again all those promises which are all true but God did not call us into isolation he called us into community he called us into friendship he called us into discipleship he said come and walk alongside each other so that we might train you Come and walk alongside each other so that we might support you. So that we might protect you. So that we might teach you. So that we might raise you up. And it's each other. This is called discipleship. Our season this year is discipleship and hospitality. Since I started saying that openly, too many of you, yes, this is directed at us. Too many of you came and said, why? Well, first and foremost, the spiritual answer because we believe that's what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as a church, is the answer. But it doesn't take a lot to look at it and go, we need it. We need to walk alongside each other. We need to raise one another up. We need to support one another. <clears throat> we don't like this in, uh, in England. We need to hold each other to account. We need to point things out to each other and help each other. It's called discipleship. This is still true. Still going to happen. And you're still going to need it. Because no one's going to be perfect after this. But all you have to do. Is have your conversion experience. For Paul it was dramatic. For you it can be simply to say. I just believe. That there is a God. And that he loved me. And that he sent his son to die for me. And then you need to tell somebody. Because it says believe in your heart. And confess with your lips. And then what did he do? He took a step of obedience. He got himself baptized. And then he went on this huge lifelong journey of being discipled and discipling others. The greatest story outside of the actual gospel in the whole of our Bible. 
is about discipleship. Can I pray for us? I know we're going to share some testimonies over teas and coffees. Lord, we, we pray that no one misunderstand the message from today. Lord, we ask that hearts and ears and minds are softened to the idea that you have something better for us. That you have something higher planned for us as individuals and as families and as a church. That, Lord, nobody go away with that lie of the enemy and say that this was a message of condemnation or accusation because it just isn't. This is a message of you saying to us, I loved you and I will always love you. But my child, I don't want you to sleep on the floor until you're 30 years old. I want you to get up and walk. I want you to run. I want to train you. But Lord, I know we need your help. Just like those mighty men and women in your word. Just like the people we know in our own lives. The mighty men and women around us. Had to go on a discipleship journey with somebody or a group of people. Lord, this is not about condemnation. This is about an exciting fulfillment of a future plan you have for our lives. Lord, my prayer for us as a family is that you soften our hearts and you soften our minds so that we might actually be able to sit in your peace and in your rest and see what you have planned for us. To see what we can do to draw closer to you. Because you are so desperate to draw closer to us. The God who created heaven and earth and hung the stars in the sky wants to know you personally. And he is giving you every tool and weapon at his disposal to help you do that. To help you remove the barrier. He's given you grace. He's given you mercy. He's given you people around you to help. He's given you his holy church. He's given you his son Jesus. He's given you, that's a direct telephone line to heaven, isn't it? That we can pray anything in the name of Jesus and he will listen in heaven. He gave you everything you needed. You just have to say yes. Every insecurity, every guilt, every shame, every feeling of condemnation now be gone in the name of Jesus. You are not welcome here. We are a family and we love one another. And we will take up the mantle of you, Jesus, and we will say we will do everything in our lives to follow you. We will run after you. We will run as a pack. We will protect one another. We will help one another. We will walk with one another. And we will run with one another. Because Jesus, we love you and we believe your promises. In Jesus' name. Amen.